it was probably really nice at that time because of that imposter syndrome I felt I had been going through um, in my new role to sort of give me that you know, internal validation of it. Actually, you know, the kid's okay. You're doing all right. Um, G'day and welcome to episode 23 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, And thanks to everyone who's coming back to listen again. And for anyone who it's your first time, I really hope that you're able to get something out of these conversations. We're getting a few loyal listeners now, which is bloody cool. So thanks everyone. I'd love for you to jump over to our Instagram at humans of agriculture with an underscore and let us know if you've got a bit of a routine for when you're tuning in. Is it while you're out for your morning walk? It's just a time for you to zone out or while you're having a coffee. And while you're there, you can check out some of our photo blogs and our video that we did with the team at Green Eggs last week. Today, I'm sitting down with someone who has personally really helped me about 18 months ago and kind of since. She gave me the confidence to chase what it was that I was after. A conversation I had with Georgie Ailey at a previous job was a massive piece of self-discovery and her advice I've carried with me ever since. For many in industry, Georgie Ailey is a household name, but for those outside, her story can resonate with absolutely anyone. She's received some of the highest accolades in our industry. She was awarded the 2013 Rabobank Emerging Leader Award recognised in 2014 as one of the 100 women in Australian agribusiness. And she went on to make the AFR's 100 Women of Influence in Australia that same year. I've worked alongside GA and I can tell you one thing that she is an absolute gun and it's a pleasure to know her. So today we're going to chat about a few different things. The early days and how agriculture actually found Georgie understanding where she wanted to have impact and then how she set off to begin this process. It saw her getting involved with events or organisations like the Youth Ag Summit and the Future Farmers Network and really giving back and being involved with young people in agriculture. I asked her about setting goals and absolutely smashing them out of the park years ahead of schedule. We touch on the concept of creating options for yourself and being somewhat in control of your career. We talk about her journey so far in agriculture and from her perspective, what are some of the perceived challenges for women in agriculture? Ask her what advice she'd give to young people thinking about entering the agriculture industry. This is another chat where I feel incredibly fortunate to get the time to sit down with this type of calibre of person. So thanks, Georgie, and I hope that you guys enjoy this chat. Welcome along to Humans of Agriculture podcast, Georgie. It's awesome to have you here. Thanks, Ollie. Looking forward to it. Long time no see. I know, or virtual see. Absolutely. Now I want to, um, yeah, jump straight into it for you. Similar background to me that you actually grew up in Sydney. And so I suppose what I want to understand is when did agriculture come onto the table for you and what started to lead you as a school student into a career in agriculture? Yeah, it's an interesting um, question, Ollie, and it's probably... I use this description, you know, I feel agriculture found me in some ways. Then, you know, the day I made an active decision to pursue a career in agriculture, and I'm not quite sure whether I ever did make a, an active decision to end up in, in the sector and, and working in the sector. But I think for me, when I look back over those sort of moments of exposure, as I was growing up and and I kept saying I didn't have farming family you know I was born and bred Sydney girl I went to school smack bang under the harbour bridge 
However, you know, I remember this clear moment of a, a friend in year four who was from Cranback, which is about 40 k's out the back of Tare, and her grandfather was a dairy farmer. And I remember this time going, you know, in school holidays out to Cranback to the dairy farm and, and staying with her. And, you know, we had to deliver our first calves. We had to put ropes around the, the hooves and pull them out. And, um, you know, we named the calf Georgina after me and, um, and had that exposure of being part of that experience. And I don't know whether that subconsciously, you know, had some impact um, on my life, but it is a moment that I think back to, okay, well, that was probably my first true farm experience. And then separate to that, I mean, I've always um, ridden horses. It's been part of my life since, you know, I could walk. And, um, and that probably extends from my mother more than anything. So I'd go to the ranch, um, you know, every school holidays and pony camp, um, like you did as every sort of Sydney girl thinking you'd just ride horses for the rest of your life. And I think that instilled in me a desire to originally study vet science. So I had this view that I would be a vet and, and specialise in equine, so um, horses overall, and that would really combine my, my passion. And um, you might have worked this out already, Ollie, but um, I'm, a, I'm a lot more social than I am sometimes studious. And so focusing on, you know, getting the marks to, to get into Sydney Uni, because that's where, you know, you went um, when you, you grew up in Sydney, uh, I didn't get the marks to end up getting into vet science. And as a result, I was actually alerted to a degree that was based out at what was Sydney Uni's campus in a town called Orange, um, which I think most people know where Orange is these days, but it's about 250 kilometres sort of west of Sydney and um, not totally rural by, um, you know, regional town standards these days. And they had an equine business management course. So essentially a, an ag business degree. And you did some specialisation in how to run racing facilities, performance horse facilities, and, um, and just run an agricultural business sort of full stop. So the kind of rhetoric was if you went out there, you got HDs, high distinctions, you could transfer straight back into, you know, main campus at Sydney Uni and do vet science. And I thought, well, can't be too hard going out to Orange and, and doing a year, I, you know, I could put up with this. And it was funny, I remember arriving in Orange and you know, you looked around the campus, the majority of people actually went to school in Sydney, you know, most have been boarders, um, actually had a lot more connections and, you know, people and, and places in common than maybe I'd first um, given any thought to. And what had, you know, planned to be one year ended up being four years. And, um, you know, before I knew it, all my friends, you know, were from farms. I'd spent, you know, four years traveling around Australia to 21st to whatever, um, race days. And um, I don't know, I think it's the thing when you, they say, you know, you find your tribe and, and you feel at home. And um, as a result of sort of finishing my degree in Orange, I, I just had this view, I think, of working in, um, you know, the industry. I still, you know, it was interesting when I went for jobs at meat processing companies. I went for jobs, um, wholesale fertiliser, you know, direct on farm. <laughs> um, and then I ended up working for a grains industry membership organisation, which took me back to Sydney. Um, and I would have moved anywhere. So that was sort of, you know, whether you consciously made decisions along the way, it just became an evolution. And here I am. Yeah. Simple as that. As simple as that. <laughs> One thing I want to know about you, have you, so coming out of university, did you think you were going to walk into kind of your dream job in those early years or do you remember what your expectations were 
early on? I think at that stage, Ollie, I was really open to anything. I mean, I, th I think, and this is what I probably say to a lot of uni students these days, you just need to start, you know, and I, and I think now even X amount of years later, um, you know, is there such thing as a, a dream job? Um, you know, we've all got bits of our jobs that we love, bits of our jobs that we don't love so much. And I think that coming out of university and getting into the workforce is to, to be open to opportunities and probably not have too many expectations. And I think for me, that appeal of working for an organisation that had, at least at that time, an East Coast, but also some sort of a national um, footprint. It allowed me to interact with farmers. And while I'm not a hands-on, you know, throw me on a tractor, I'd probably struggle, to be frank. I've, I haven't driven a tractor more than, you know, the amount of times I can count on two hands. Uh, but I knew enough around the dynamics and the impacts and the influences and, and, and the farming context uh, but I had the ability to be able to be a representative for that demographic and, and for those, those members. So, you know, I think it's around coming out of uni, what, what interests you? And it might be that all you know that interests you is the dairy sector, or I really love red meat, or, you know, I'm, I'm quite open to working in, in any part of the industry. And my view would be just get in and, you know, start and you figure that out, um, I think I'm still figuring it out, with each job, each experience. And I think that view for me has always been, you never take a job because of that job. You take a job because of the job it will lead to. And being open around opportunities and how you'll grow and change in your 20s so much and just be open to that. Definitely. And I remember some advice you gave me probably 18 months ago. It was actually, I was in the middle of looking at where to go next. And you said, Ollie, just write down the type of job that you want, your role description, mm -hmm. and then go and work out the companies that align that have roles kind of like that, but also that suit your values. And that was so, like I've um, regurgitated that to quite a few people now because it's so true. And I think the thing is, you know, I call it, I think I probably said it to you 18 months ago, this sort of values congruence. And, and it was, you know, a phrase that I learned through my um, MBA that's always stuck with me, which is where the values of yourself, um, you know, you as an individual and the values of the organisation you work for align, you know, they're congruent. And when you find an environment that um, aligns to your values and your areas of interest, you know, and I'd probably say that, you know, in my first few years of working, it didn't feel like a job. You know, you, you were happy to do the hours, you travelled, you interacted with so many people. I learned so much. And, uh, you know, that has taken me forward to, to do exactly what, what you did 18 months ago to say, okay, what interests me? What parts of, of the job do I enjoy? What are the kind of hygiene factors or the baseline components of a role I need to, to be attracted to working in that role? And then what is the company and who are the individuals in that company and what's their strategy? What do they stand for? What impact do they have? And if you can exactly that point, find some alignment between your passion and what drives you and what's going to get you out of bed every day. And you've got to have enough of that in your job, as we all know. Uh, but also... Particularly you know, now. Particularly now, I know. 
um, but to find people you enjoy working with. And you know that, you know, Ollie, in your, in your current environment is you want to work with good people, you want to work for good people and, and that being clients and or members or whoever your sort of customer is. And, um, you know, you want to do good work, but have have fun in the process and um, and have a bit of impact and, and influence in a sector that, has been so amazing to me, but a sector that I see still so much opportunity and potential and growth and, and unknown opportunity that I think we get the opportunity to unpack everything. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's probably a couple of things there that I do want to flesh out more around the impact piece. But so for you early on in your career, you became a CEO fairly young. And so you actually got to start to create the business strategy and the culture from the top as a young person. Like, Can you talk through some of those experiences and the highs and lows of being a CEO as a young person and reporting to the, these growers that are decades older? Yeah, so the company that I took over running, so I was 27 and I remember being asked, um, you know, if I wanted to be a CEO and I said to my boss at, at the time who runs one of, you know, Australia's ASX agribusinesses uh, <laughs> and I said, oh, you're going, I'll, am I taking your job? And, and he said, no, no, George, you're not. Um, but there's this other opportunity and and it was to run a membership organization but it wasn't just a membership organization the company was also what they call a health promotion charity so um, we were a registered charity and um, and our job was focused on the health and nutrition benefits of grains um, and legumes and looking at how the consumption of those in a balanced diet um, reduce you know long-term chronic health disease and so our member companies were major multinational food companies and um, as well as grower um, organisations and, and therefore representing growers. So growers were about sort of 50% of our revenue. And I think, Ollie, and we hear this all the time, the lovely sort of imposter syndrome. I think the biggest challenge for me at that time, and, and I remember saying to my chair at the time, who, um, you know, is, is still a very strong influence in my career to this date, um, has been a lovely mentor my whole life and good friend, um, and has chaired many ag-related and non-ag-related organisations. And I remember ringing her at one point in time and I said, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm totally out of my depth here. Um, you know, I don't talk like them. I'm not dressing like them. I'm not acting like them. You know, when, you, when you're going and meeting the CEO of Kellogg or you're going and meeting an executive committee member at Nestle, uh, you know, they're, they're big companies. And at that point in time, you know, felt they knew so much more than what I did. And 
I think where, where I got to the heart of the matter was, is what was the challenges of our organisation at the time and, and what were our members really asking for? And I was fortunate to come in and be asked, you know, to, to present a new strategy and a three-year plan for the organisation. And I had a great board that worked through that with me, but it actually gave me a chance to sit back and just ask our members, you know, what do you want? What's important to you? Where can we have impact and influence when we look at the health of Australians? Um, you know, where do we want to influence what this category looks like in, in terms of public health? and nutrition and how do we want to educate consumers and engage with consumers and how does the regulatory sphere look to support that and the enabling policy uh, and also how do we connect in globally you know in terms of what's happening around latest research you know latest um, science coming out of particularly Europe and, and North America and it was that process that I got to spend a lot of time with our members and just collate their feedback and then, you know, use the business skills that I had to, to be able to segment and come up with a strategy and test that back with members and really refine that. And what it taught me was just some really good skills around a strategy, stakeholder buy-in, stakeholder engagement, um, delivering the return on the investment back to your stakeholders and back to your sector and how you measure that impact and measure that performance. And we were really disciplined around limited budget, you know, we're a small organisation, four staff, so it wasn't like I was a CEO, only 27 of a team of 400. Um, you know, we have four staff and, and most of my team were dietitians and, um, and I had a media comms team and then, you know, some outsourced um, support. And it really just, uh, that process and that experience gave me, you know, a lot of confidence, a lot of growth and the chance to fail, test, try uh, in that time as well. But I think Imposter syndrome is something I don't think you get over it at any age or in, or in any environment. It's probably how you deal with it. And at the end of the day, remembering people are human. You know, what mm. is this? Humans of agriculture. I mean, everybody every day has got something going on in their own life, whether that be work, personal, you know, as you say, now more than ever is human connection and purpose and drive, you know, um, just more heightened. And remembering that fact and remembering that, you know, regardless if they were a CEO or if they were, uh, you know, head of whatever or an officer level role, um, you know, we're all important. We all have a role to play in, in running organisations and, and having impact and, you know, that leadership and that contribution can come from any level of an organisation. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, I thought I knew your story fairly well, but I didn't know that, yeah, 27, you were, I knew you were a go-getter, but holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, um, look, and, you know, as they say, right time, right opportunity and taking advantage of opportunities. You know, I could have easily said, no, I'm not ready. Um, but I knew I had the support, the network. I had a really strong chair and I really, you know, so my CEO from the company I came from was also on the board of the organisation I was moving to. So, you know, that role of having a network, having good mentors, having people you can rely on. Um, gave me that that confidence to to walk in and and have a crack, you know. Yeah. Um, you can only fail, um, but you can also succeed, you know. When you look at the other side. Absolutely, you've got something to learn as well. Exactly. And so for you, you've always been so involved in all kinds of areas. How important, like, has it been for you to, I suppose, be in control yourself and actually controlling the options you've got in front of you? Yeah, it's funny, Ollie, I've really reflected on that very recently um, as well. And it, I think it's, an, it's a 
it's a fine line in some ways around having a view and a plan and and a sense of where you want to go and and what you want to explore and anybody that knows me knows I'm a planner I think my partner you know gets frustrated with me scheduling things in for you know this on a certain night um but I for me personally and um and I just I've needed that sense general sense of of direction and I think my structure and plan around that has evolved over the years and I was pretty strong on the five-year horizon you know by 25 this by 30 this by 35 that um, and then I think I sort of stretched it out to you know by 45 and beyond and to to be honest I probably got to 27 and I'd hit my 30 you know target <laughs> and yeah. um, and you start to rethink I think that there is as I said that fine line around being open to opportunity and not being afraid to explore opportunities while also having that general sense back to our comment around what interests you, what are the values of a company, where do you get satisfaction and, um, and how does that start to look and what companies are you attracted to in that way and, and where might you fit in that organisation and being aware of that because exactly that point where an opportunity might come up when you're in another organisation, not necessarily when you're looking for a job. And sometimes actually the worst time to leave a job is when you're over your current role. You know, it's yeah. sometimes a better time to leave when, you know, you are having some wins, you're growing, you're evolving and you're constantly having that jump um, than getting stale and just staying there for security. And, and I've probably always enjoyed that that challenge and, um, you know, and, and being involved and pushing myself. And I think it's just helped me refine the right paths, the right opportunities. But yeah, it's, it's, it's probably a really um, personal question right now for me, Ollie, that one as well around taking control of your own pathway. And, um, and I'm probably at a position now around, you know, how much influence and control do you have over that and or, or what or how do you reposition that influence and control and how do you make that decision around how to navigate that path? And I like to have a plan and I like to have a general view over the horizon, but I also like to be a bit fluid in some ways around how prescriptive you are in the implementation of that. Yeah. So would you say you're like quite a calculated person when it comes to those things or do you trust your gut a lot? Like once you've done your planning to get to a point where you just go, all right, it feels right. I've just got to. Yeah, I think there's an element of feels right. Um, well, I'll give you an example. And it's probably back to even our conversation 18 months ago when I made the decision to leave my last job and um, I had given my, my notice. And so it was, you know, quite public that I was moving on and at that point in time, that probably was a stage where I said, right, I'm going to be quite calculated and, and have a real, you know, clear thought process behind what my next step is. And I think for me at the time, I was looking for certain organisations and certain sort of industries and roles um, to, to challenge me at the next step. And as part of that, I was, I was quite, um, not calculated, but I um, was quite planned in how I went about that you know I, I pulled out exactly what I said to you what am I looking for I wrote my job description I wrote what I was looking for what sort of areas interests me and, and really sat back around that and then you know I looked at you know probably 30 to 50 companies 
and I had a look at their strategy. I had a look at their leadership team, their chair, their achievements, um, their scope and their sort of area of um, involvement in the, in the industry and really thought hard around, you know, would I work for them? Would I not? What type of role could I do for that company given what I'd had on my job description over here? And look, by complete chance through a, a, a connection was introduced um, you know, to my now current boss. And that was purely by chance and, um, and evolved into a conversation that, you know, evolved in terms of, of a job, you know, nearly 12 months later. So it was, it was quite a while. And yeah, so I, I am calculated, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, intuition, it gets you, I think if you try and ignore it for too long, you know, you, you know in your gut sometimes, that something just feels right, even when you don't have all the information. And you've also got to feel comfortable making a decision with the information you have available. And sometimes it's not all the information. And yeah. I think your, your gut plays a part in that. Absolutely. And I just wanted to loop back to, so you were talking about imposter syndrome. And so I had to write down the list of accolades you, you got. But so you were the initial winner of the 2013 Rabobank Emerging Leader Award. And then the following year, you went on to be recognised as one of the hundred women of influence in Australian agribusiness, as well as by the AFR as Australia's 100 women of influence more broadly. Did like, do you have to pinch yourself at that time? Cause six or seven years ago, you in your late twenties. Yeah. Did, did it change your perspective on things? Um, did it change my perspective? Look, it was, I, you know, I remember the day the CEO of Rabobank um, called me um, and it was Toss at the time um, and, and you know, told me that, that I'd been given this award and I was actually standing in a client's office in, in Melbourne um, when I had the call. And I think Ollie very overwhelmed. I mean, it was the inaugural time Rabobank had, had actually looked at a young leaders award. And, and it probably didn't get lost on me, the gravity of, of that award, because when I, you know, looked around at the, you know, national, you know, I don't know if you call it the senior leaders, the real leaders award, um, and you, you looked at those that had, um, you know, been awarded that. I mean, it's, you know, it's Barry Irvin, who, of course, we know from Vega Cheese, it's Don McGecky. Uh, you know, there's, there's several influential people that have been awarded that award. Um, or men, might I say, Ollie. So I was the first female as well, which, which was a good thing. Lovely. And, um, you know, I don't, it, yeah, it was definitely not lost on me, the weight of it. And it was, um, it was probably really nice at that time because of that imposter syndrome I felt I had been going through um, in my new role to sort of give me that, you know, internal validation of it, actually, you know, the kid's okay, you're doing all right, um, <laughs> you know, the kids are all right. Uh, and that, you know, just that little bit of confidence to just, you know, remain true to yourself, keep going. And, and I remember, you know, the old boss I refer to who turned to me that night and said, you know, enjoy tonight because tomorrow you still have to get up and go to work. You know, and it was that never rest on your laurels. Um, you know, it's it's nice to receive those things, but it's not why you do what you do um, in the process. I mean, the Fin Review was um, was a you know it was it was very lovely uh, and amazing to be you know recognised with ninety nine other amazing women from every sector of Australia, yeah. and um, and it was a lovely dinner to go to and meet all those people and 
and be part of that experience of recognising, you know, women's contribution to, you know, not just Australian business, but society more broadly. Mm. So that was, yeah, really, really lovely and something that was beyond, you know, the food and ag sector. Um, so, no, it, 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 I don't know if it changes you, it probably made me, you know, more determined to continue to deliver, serve, um, add value, give back um, and continue to put your head down, bum up and, you know, keep, keep doing it. Yeah, smash that glass ceiling so you better keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> and like on, so you've talked about a little bit there around society and the impact piece. Have you had a clear kind of understanding of like, what feels right to you in terms of the impact that you want to have or has that changed? Yeah, can you give us a bit of a, an understanding into where you are now and where you want to be? Yeah, I think for me, impact, I mean, I, th- I think the level of impact and and the, you know, maybe legacy is another word of, of what you want to have in what you do. Um, has definitely changed pending the roles I've been in over the years. And and I remember a, a clear point, you know, when I worked for um, grain farmers and, you know, every day it was sort of, well, I have this view that coming to work and what I'm doing is adding value or, um, you know, in some way making the operating environment of a grain producer or grain farmer um, more profitable, more efficient, more sustainable. And there was that higher purpose to why we we did what we did. And, you know, if we could have an influence over a policy or a regulation at a federal government level, then that was great. You know, we were going through single desk at the time with the wheat industry. We were going through negotiating port access arrangements. Um, GM, you know, moratoriums were coming through. And, you know, this was all around how do we equip the grain farmers of Australia to to be profitable and to have access to, you know, the right tools and technologies and innovations that are going to allow them to continue to be globally competitive and and world leaders in, in what they do. And so I think for me, you know, knowing them personally, having gone out on their farms, I knew their wives, their kids, their husbands, their family, their community, um, that motivated me. And and so for me, every day and what we did and the programs we looked at and the education forums we provided and the services was always around ha- making sure this has impact and, and adds value to their businesses. And so that, I think, has continued to motivate me in, in every role is, are you serving your stakeholders and are you um, curating uh, something that gives them value return or, or will pay off in, in the long term. And also, you know, I've had my times where you've had to make decisions that sometimes has not been widely accepted by stakeholders within, mm. you know, who you are, are serving. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes you have to make those decisions to make changes to organisations and structures and, um, and push things through uh, to actually set an organisation up longer term and that might deliver short-term pain and you learn not to be the most popular person in the room but ultimately knowing deep down that those changes were necessary and they will have and have had a longer-term impact 
on the overall health and outcome and, and, and structure of an organisation. So, yeah, for me, it really comes down to, you know, who is that stakeholder? Who, who are you serving in that way? And then I think bigger picture for me, it's always been around um, that national conversation. You know, I think I ultimately have a view around contributing to the overall growth, prosperity, opportunity, innovation, advancement of the sector as a whole. And that motivates me because you do that in so many different ways. So whether that be helping a certain client in a particular sector, um, whether that be giving back in through a community group or a particular, you know, not-for-profit or volunteer component, uh, you know, by delivering against that in some way to me, I hope and, and my intent is that that has a bigger influence and impact in, you know, the longer term profitability and, and overall position of the sector. Definitely. And so that's something that you nearly could have written the script here, I think. Um, <laughs> the involvement and the countless, who knows how many thousands of hours you've donated or volunteered into the the sector, but you were, have been incredibly involved with young people in agriculture from the get-go. Like, was that just something that felt right? Was it because you felt potentially out of place with coming from a city background? What led to getting yeah, knee-deep in, in that? So the first thing that probably drove that motivation was, you know, my story about having gone to uni with, you know, a lot of friends that had gone back on farms and, you know, anybody that knows, you know, anything about young farmers in this industry is, you know, they're just trying to make a buck, you know, they're they're trying to have a crack and, and, you know, lots of friends that were trying to get into farming. I've had many friends that came from the city that have, you know, gone back onto farms, uh, trying to buy their first farms or dealing with, you know, succession planning and, and family businesses working for corporates the whole gamut and I think my time getting involved at the start and and it resulted in you know starting conferences like Innovation Generation at the time was I had this fortunate opportunity in my role as a young person to go to industry conferences and to go to industry meetings and receive all this information and insights that you know I wasn't farming so it wasn't really adding value to my business but in my position at the time and in those roles and organisations, I could actually be a conduit to take that information and that insight and package it up in a way that I could share that with my farming mates and their businesses and give them a chance to access the, the best, the top industry leaders and grow their business and grow, you know, themselves in that process. And so that probably motivated me at the time to say, actually, I can give back by creating, you know, some sort of forum that allows me to spend a year pulling together the best speakers, the best lot of information that's truly going to add value and and return and benefit to this segment of the, the young farmer population but also young agribusinesses having our conversation around careers and everything we just had Ollie you know for uni students you know what are those opportunities what's happening across the supply chain what's happening with internet you know international customers and package that up in a three-day forum where they could come network with peers get access to that information have a good time get off farm we'd come through some of the worst droughts at the back of 20 um 2007 and you know, I think seeing that pay off and then getting involved in things like the Future Farmers Network, I could see that it was delivering value and that, again, kept motivating me to continue to be involved. 
Yeah. I had a conversation with a mate last year and it was around the time, like I was working on global table and he's my age. Um, and was just saying like how stuck he is in terms of like everything he knows revolves around the farm, whether it's inputs or kind of what goes on outside. And he was like, Oh, I'd love to go to the event purely just to understand like how people talk and what they're talking about. And obviously he's a cropping guy. So he loves kind of gizmets and and gadgets. And yeah, it's just that understanding of kind of what's happening away from, from you, but still absolutely involved with you that kind of excited him. And I think there's probably just not enough opportunities for people to get out or so it seems at the moment anyway. And I also think people need to realise that you don't actually have to physically be on the farm yeah. to be growing and generating value. And it's and it's an interesting thing if we take Nuffield. So I was involved in Nuffield for a, a while um, sort of earlier in my career and, and was fortunate to, you know, sit on selection panels and, and hear from Nuffield scholars and go to Nuffield conferences. And I think that was the biggest learning for so many people that went through Nuffield is, you know, you spend three months of the year off farm. You yeah. travel around the world, you go to conferences and and actually learning to manage your business when you're not there. Um, many of them will talk about how much more profitable, efficient, productive their business was because they got away and took a new perspective and were exposed to new opportunities or new ways of thinking, but also having that time to you know, work on, um, you know, rather than in yeah. the, the business. And I think we're, we take a big mindset like that around business. And I think for farmers, there is, and, and I think that's changed a lot and continues to evolve around that view of working on the business and having plans and getting exposure and, and giving themselves permission to get off farm and um, and go and get that immersion and, and exposure that you're talking about with your friend just now and how much richer they are and productive and impactful they are back in the business when they go home. Oh, definitely. And, like, I've got mates now that are going through succession and, like, the headaches, my God, that that creates for... Uh, I'm so glad I don't have a family farm just to, to go through that. But, like, the question I've been asking myself the last week or two about the whole succession piece and why these people get themselves in such kind of conundrums is it that like as an industry people go back to the farm and they like I just know how much I've got experience from different businesses but within those businesses it's the people you learn off and even if it's a two or three months stint like just how much you can learn Mm. maybe it's a real gap or a flaw in terms of how the mindset of farming is that we don't get out yeah, and I think, look, you know, the other aspect is such the generational component to that. So, you know, we, as you say, we learn off those around us. So, you know, when you think about the current generational shift we're seeing or have seen very much so in the last five years, you know, that generation handing over, you know, in inverted commas, uh, the checkbook, the reins, whatever description you want to use. I mean, many of them came home at 14, 15, 16 and, um, you know, have gone through, uh, you know, multiple decades of experiencing drought and growing the business from scratch and, you know, probably taking over from, you know, their, um, you know, generation before them over a period like that. So, your experience and what you're exposed to very much, as you say, will shape how you, you do that with the next generation. And so it'll be interesting, I think, to see the current generation that are coming through, how will we change succession planning and think about succession planning 
into the future having lived that experienced that process and where you know succession planning is much more common language um, than what we you know or what the current generation handing over would have experienced 30 mm. years ago was sort of you know Jack's getting the farm, no questions about it, um, and I'll hand the checkbook over when I'm ready. But yeah. I think one thing in succession planning that is not often talked about is this, this, the generation that is handing over, they're not just handing over an asset. You know, that's a way of life. It's their identity. Mm. It's, it's their connectivity with everything they've known. And so I think, you know, how we are conscious and how that exiting generation still has the opportunity should they want to remain connected and 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 involved um because you know there's nothing worse than seeing a farmer you know complete succession planning move into town and within a short amount of time you know no longer be there yeah um, so I'm, I'm always conscious of you know how does that feel to hand over and move on um but but still not lose your identity in that process challenging sensitive yeah oh man my uncle um i think he's just one of those people even if like the farm was to be sold i feel like the person coming in would just be like "Ah, pete's been here long enough we'll just leave him exactly exactly (laughs) part of the furniture oh just yeah potters all day every day gotta love it (laughs) having impact i'm sure in one way Yeah, Yeah. yeah yeah um and so Looping into the Youth Ag Summit and the Future Farmers Network piece in those early days, was there many women involved in that alongside you? Or how's that kind of evolved yeah, during your time that you were there? Yeah, look, I think I'm really fortunate. I always get asked this question around, you know, women in industry and being a woman in, in um, Australian ag. And I think I was the generation that came in at a time there were women that had been quite active and influenced and in, and involved in the sector. So I don't ever feel like gender's been a thing for me. You know, I've always worked with other women. Um, I've always, you know, had um, women that were in, you know, more senior positions. And I always have that conversation with women that are probably five years older than me uh, and, and their experience, which was, I think, fundamentally different to mine. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the time that I was coming into industry, you know, we had women like Alison Watkins coming in to run Grain Corp you know, at the end of 2008. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had, um, you know, international women coming in to run Grain Corp. So Philippa came in to take over Grain Corp. And, you know, there were women like Fiona Simpson taking on the presidency of New South Wales Farmers. So there were a lot of other women coming in to the sector. Um, so, yeah, it's funny, Ollie, I think I've always had women around me and it's, it's gender's never been um, something that I've thought too too hard about. Yeah. That's good. Fortunate, um, I think. There are many trailblazers well and truly before me that have really, you know, I think driven that opportunity for women in this sector. Yeah, for sure. And we know, like, with us at FFN and kind of the various roles I do, the day job, like, there's so many, like, it's just people at work. And I think it's also skewed a lot more female these days. You know, when we look at agribusiness, and I think when we started not being so farmer focused Mm -hmm. and we thought more about the value chain, I think that's when we opened up a lot more sort of women um, coming into the sector. And I think when you do look at young agribusiness professionals, I think you see quite a strong skew, more female than male, which is quite interesting as to how that shifted. 
And I know definitely when, like with some of the programs I've done. So there was one with the ARLF, there was 10 applicants and only, or whatever, 10 people selected, three of them were male. And basically what came out of that was that the guys, the young men coming through an industry just don't put their hands up mm. for these opportunities. And it, they're so competitive by amazingly credentialed people and the, the blokes are missing in it. So Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we're swinging too far the other way. Oh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Wait and see. Wait yeah. Um, and so to wrap things up a little bit, mindful of your time. So I think it ties nicely into that. I was going to say for what's your advice for young women like coming into industry, but like, so if you were to speak it to people year 10 or 11 at school about agriculture and the opportunities within it, what kind of messages would you push through to them about the industry now and where it's going? I think for young people, women or, or, you know, young men in, in our sector is, I think it's, it's also been a challenging one around looking around how you map careers. I mean, it's not like going into engineering or it's not like going into being a doctor and, or a teacher and you have this really set pathway as to how you progress through your career, you know, in the, um, in the industry. And I think the opportunity is that you can be in any role and work in agriculture you know so we need people that have marketing skills communication skills legal skills but I think what is the attractive aspect around our industry for young people is this you know aspect of everybody needs to eat and and food plays such a broad role in the lives of every person so not only is food required for simple functioning and living and you know just to to the you know human basic um you know um functioning but it is also so social so emotional and um and so you know community in some ways about that so you think about when you catch up with friends it's over a meal uh this fact of tasting so many you know, cuisines from around the world and, and how fortunate we are in Australia to have access to, you know, every um, different cuisine. And so I think when we think about this industry is around working in an industry that has purpose. For me, it's working in an industry that is full of people who are passionate about that purpose. And it is full of people that are and I don't like to say like-minded because I think while we're all passionate and purpose and around this sector, I think there is that good, healthy challenge and debate and discussion around how we grow and how, and how we prosper. Um, but I think is that opportunity of, you know, whatever role or whatever type of job you want to have, you can do that job in this industry, which is yeah. so broad and work in a sector that actually has impact, has purpose, and is a fundamental component of every human being's life. And there's not many industries you can say that about. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I reckon that's a very good way to finish. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Not a problem, Ollie. It's been good to have a chat. There you go. An absolute pleasure to speak with Georgie Ailey this week. I'd love to know what you guys thought were kind of your top one, two, three takeaways from it. If you've got any ideas of topics or speakers you'd like us to cover, please reach out and get in touch. Next week, 
I've got Amy Knight from Nutrition Australia joining. We're going to chat about the relationship between food and mood, a bit about what are some of the trends we're seeing during COVID and just some of her work and, and background that she's done so far. You can keep up to date with what we're up to on our Instagram page at Humans of Agriculture. And as always, if you feel like asking any questions or just having a chat, please reach out. See you next week.